If you're like me, there are certain just weird moments that stick out to you from childhood, you know, just random things that, or even feelings from your own life in early years that you remember. I don't know if first memory is the right word, but for me, one of those memories that sticks out was learning to ice skate at Riverfront Park in Spokane, Washington, where I grew up. Um, Early on, it was an outside rink, and it had a pavilion kind of on top of it in the middle of a park. It was a long walk to get there. I remember the hot chocolate that almost always accompanied our, our ice skating there and learning to skate there, and then there would be you know, colored lights and music that would play from the top. And I remember one particular feeling, I don't know the exact day or anything, but a particular feeling that came over me when a certain song was played over the loudspeaker. And the lyrics to this song went, I'm looking for a reason roaming through the night to find my place in this world. Some of you know this. Not a lot to lean on. I need your light to help me find my place in this world. I'm an early 90s kid. That's when I grew up. And that was Michael W. Smith's anthemic pop Christian song, My Place in This World. And I remember that song coming on and that feeling of, hey, I know this song. Because my parents put me to sleep every night with Michael W. Smith playing, so I knew his entire like, first five albums right, by heart. And then being there at the ice rink where they were playing a bunch of non-Christian songs. But Michael W. Smith's song had broken through and it had received secular radio play. And there was a feeling of, hey, I know this. I, I, I can belong here. Even you know, growing up in what we might call a Christian environment, there are times where you don't feel like you belong as a Christian. And hearing you know, a Christian pop song on the radio or on the loudspeaker at an ice rink can give you a sense of belonging. We're not so weird. Well, our music can even be appreciated by non-Christians. At its best, I think... This is what the church does, is give a real place of eternal belonging to those who were previously on the outside. The church, the body of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, is a place where people belong, where they have, as Michael W. Smith is saying, a place in this world. Where people from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all family upbringings, all walks of life, all cultures can come together and be unified under one king in one kingdom as one people. People from the outside brought in, belonging together, having a place together, an eternal place, an eternal kingdom. That's really what Acts 8 is about. The book of Acts is all about that. But Acts 8 in particular is about how unlikely people, people on the fringes, people on the outside of the community of faith, the Jewish community, are brought in. Outsiders are brought in through the word of Jesus Christ. That's the theme that kind of runs all the way through Acts chapter 8. We're going to cover all of it this morning. We'll read a lot as we go. But that theme runs through Acts 8, that outsiders are brought in through the word of Jesus Christ. You remember the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, starting there, and then in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This chapter, chapter 8, really focuses on the Judea and Samaria. It's kind of the transition before the mission goes completely to the Gentiles who don't know God at all. A lot of Acts will cover the mission to the Gentiles. This is a transitional phase where the gospel is spreading out to those who are kind of on the fringes of Jerusalem. 
people who might know God somewhat, but aren't really part of the Jewish community, particularly in Jerusalem. So here the gospel begins to spread out and scatter to the surrounding areas and bring outsiders in. That's the theme of the passage. Outsiders are brought in through the word of Jesus Christ. And if outsiders are going to be brought in, if the, the word is going to go out, or if the, then the people have to go out and the people have to be scattered. And that's what we see in the first three verses. In Acts 8, 1 through 3, the first section here, the church in Jerusalem is scattered. Real quickly, let's read that and, and just talk about this for a moment. The church in Jerusalem is scattered. This happens when Stephen, after Stephen is put on trial and killed for his faith, Stephen makes the confession that we make on Palm Sunday, that Jesus is king. He has a vision of Jesus as Lord, and for that, he is killed as a blasphemer. That will begin the persecution of the church in earnest. And the church in Jerusalem is scattered. Verse 1. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, who we also know as Paul, again, we're going to get to a lot more of him later, but here he is an enemy of the church. He was there at Stephen's execution, at his stoning. He approved of it. He was a leader of the Jerusalem council there. Unlike his teacher Gamaliel, remember Gamaliel said, just leave the church alone. Leave these Christ followers alone. They'll fade off on their own. Saul takes the exact opposite approach and targets them and persecutes them. The, the stoning of Stephen and his death is kind of what breaks the dam of persecution. Once he is put to death, it's almost like a predator that tastes blood and gets a taste for it and hunger for it. Now, those who are opposed to Jesus Christ, those who are opposed to all those who worship him, they are on a full court press trying to put a stop to this Christian movement. Saul's one of the leaders of that. Going from home to home, because churches met in homes, finding where these gatherings of Christ followers are and committing them, sending them to prison. They're probably even more provoked by the fact that Stephen got a proper burial. The fact that some people took the time to give Stephen a proper burial after his stoning uh, was a, maybe a form of silent protest against the stoning itself, and that may have further provoked Saul and those who would oppress the early church. But now we have the church fully in persecution in Jerusalem. That will scatter them about. Looking for safety, they'll go to the surrounding regions. The apostles will stay behind in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church kind of seems to scatter throughout the region. We can note two things from this. Because this persecution will result in scattering of the church, which will result in the gospel going out from Jerusalem. And we'll note that for the gospel to go out, the church actually has to go out. 
by God's sovereign design, the Christian church did not stay in Jerusalem, but was pushed outward. God allowed, to put it lightly, great discomfort upon the church so that they would have no choice but to fulfill his mission of the gospel going out. It tells us right from the beginning that the church was never meant to be comfortable and stay in one place. This is why I can talk about growing up in Spokane and I'm here in Kansas. Because sometimes the Lord calls people elsewhere. This is why this church was planted over 50 years ago because God called people to go elsewhere. It's why we are looking at planting a church, because God calls people to go elsewhere and take the gospel with them, even if it's uncomfortable. Many of us feel discomfort about the idea of sending people off to go plant a church. Right from the beginning in the book of Acts, we see that comfort is not the top priority for God and his church. His priority for his church is that they would be sent as witnesses elsewhere, scattered about. It's our own denomination's experience. If you know anything about Mennonite Brethren, we're officially a Mennonite Brethren church which means we have historic roots in the Anabaptist Mennonite movement. If you know anything about the Anabaptist Mennonite movement, it was a movement that was started in the Reformation in Europe in the 1500s and 1600s, a group that grew up with convictions about the word of God and how it was to be interpreted, and our faith would be determined not by ruling governors, but by scripture and what it says. Because of that conviction, the Anabaptists were persecuted. And the Mennonites in particular were persecuted in Europe, particularly in Germany and surrounding areas. So where did they go? Well, eventually, they found a home over in modern Russia. 1700s, scattered over to Russia, because there, there was security and peace, and the, the Russian government at the time allowed them to work the land and to stay there and find peace. What happened there? Well, eventually, there was no longer peace there. The Mennonite church, as it rose up, the Mennonite Brethren church, as it was founded over in Russia, was forced into, uh, they were basically forced into military service and said, either you serve in the military or you're going to face the consequences. So they faced the consequences. And then in the midst of Russian revolution, the church in Russia, the Mennonite Brethren church, scattered again. And where did they land? Late 1800s, early 1900s, they landed over here, U.S. and Canada, and the Plains and Midwest in particular. And if you are here today and know Jesus Christ and receive the gospel because of the Mennonite Brethren Church, you are here because of a series of persecutions and scatterings throughout history. That's just one story. There are many in the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, where persecution has come, it has caused the church to spread, and the gospel goes out with them. People are saved and come to eternal life because of God's providence, 
even in the darkness and hardships of persecution. That's what happens here in the early church. And as the people spread, they scatter and preach the word. And that's what happens here in verses 4 through 8. They go to Samaria. And crowds in Samaria are healed. That's how it's titled verses 4 through 8. Crowds in Samaria are healed. As a church spreads in one person in particular. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So as Christians... And those who were followers of Christ are persecuted, they spread, and they preach the word. That's a great theme of this passage, the word evangelizomai in Greek, evangelize. That word is used five times in this passage. It's a theme that they go out. And notice, the apostles stayed behind, so it's the rest of the church that goes out and preaches. It's not just the professionals, right? It's not just the leaders, not just the pros who are going about preaching the word. It's the whole church going out and preaches. And one of them, Philip, he, he wasn't even called as one of the original preachers, right? Philip was one of the seven in Acts 6 who was called aside to serve and serve food to the Greek widows. That was Philip, but he later became known as the evangelist in Acts because he went out, and when he went out, he preached. He went to Samaria and he preached the gospel that the Messiah, the king who was promised, is Jesus Christ. He preached that message in Samaria and in the city of Samaria. What do we know about Samaria? If you've been going to Mike Bullock's Sunday school class, you, you know this. The kingdom of Israel at one point, one united kingdom, it was split into southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel, capital city of Israel, Samaria. What happened to those people in the northern kingdom? Conquered by the Assyrians. Assyrians spread them around and spread other people in. And what happened to those people who were there behind the northern kingdom? They became intermixed with all bunch of other faiths. So they had a Jewish heritage and also mixed in with other religions and other faiths and other gods. And they kind of became known as a mixed breed, particularly to those southern kingdom folks, the people in Judah. And there was constant strife between the northern and southern kingdom. Even in Jesus' day, how were Samaritans viewed by the Jews? Not highly. A lot of ethnic, cultural tension there. But what happens here when the church is scattered? These despised Samaritans believe. And they become part of the family. The kingdom comes to Samaria. It is evidenced in signs that Philip performed. People are healed. Demons cast out because the kingdom had come. Kind of a funny thing. Throughout all the Old Testament, you never hear of demons being cast out. And then in the New Testament, you do. Why? Because the king and the kingdom have come. And demons being cast out and people being healed in Samaria are clear proof the kingdom is here. 
amongst these people that we didn't think could be part of the kingdom. We, they were wrong. We didn't like them. But when Jesus comes and the kingdom is preached and the gospel goes out, they become part of our people. There's a lot of talk today about reconciliation. If you're paying attention at all, uh, that's a big theme because there's, tethic, or there's tension between ethnicities, there's tension in politics, there's tension in ideologies and cultures, so there's a lot of talk about how do we reconcile, how do we become one. Here's the ultimate, really only true means of reconciliation. We have one Father, one Lord, one baptism, one faith. We are united as a people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it can unite Samaritans and Jewish followers of Jesus, then they can unite anybody. This is part of the work the gospel does. As it goes out, people are united together in Jesus. As Ephesians 2 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what happened here in verses 4 through 8. The Samaritans are brought in to this Jesus movement. And this gospel brings in surprising people, as we see with Simon the magician. So verses 9 through 25, we hear about Simon the magician. Uh, You've heard of the movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. We could call this The Curious Case of Simon the Magician, uh, because he leaves us in in a curious spot. We'll get there. I'll show you what I mean. Simon becomes part of this movement, but we'll become clear, at first at least, is not really sure what it's all about. So Simon the magician is confronted. And that's what happens in verses 9 through 25. Simon the magician is confronted, called to fully repent and believe. Verse 9. There is a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying... This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We'll stop there. So we find people of Samaria responding to the preaching of the gospel. And one of those who responds is Simon. And Simon the magician, or you could call him a sorcerer. Uh, there have been debates amongst commentators. and Many people thought, well, maybe he was just doing like optical illusions and tricks. And they believed it as magic. You know, if you go to a Lance Burton show or David Copperfield or whoever the newer magicians are, um, there are tricks and secrets to behind all their illusions. Maybe that's what Simon was doing. Or it could be that he actually had real supernatural power given to him by some spirit. I tend to think that's the case here. Scripture does not shy away from the supernatural. We can go back to Moses and the courts of Pharaoh and the Egyptian sorcerers who were able to do miraculous things and signs and wonders. It appears that's what's going on here. Simon, the magician, kind of had the whole city under his spell because he was able to do some pretty miraculous things. And he pointed back to himself, called himself great, and the people believed, yes, he's great. He's the power of God. 
which is important for us to recognize. Just take a moment and think about this. Just because somebody is able to do wonderful things and gain a crowd, it doesn't mean they're of the Lord. Just because something seems really charismatically wonderful and even supernatural, just because there's spiritual power behind someone or something or some movement, it doesn't mean that it's the right spirit. Demons are real. The supernatural is real. And just because something is supernatural, it doesn't mean it's of God. You say, well, how do you discern between the two? Well, you discern in the message. What does Philip preach? Philip is going to come do more amazing signs and wonders, but the thing that Philip does, he doesn't preach himself, he preaches Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. That is what differentiates. He preaches not his own name, but the name of Jesus why Paul will say, you know, even if an angel of light comes to you, but he doesn't preach our gospel, let him be accursed. It's about the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Philip comes preaching. Now, Philip also does miraculous things. So the people follow Philip. They believe the message. They follow him. They're baptized. Even Simon the magician is baptized. And why are they baptized? Well, baptism is how you profess faith. It's how you say, I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of this kingdom of God. They didn't have like online registration. You know, they didn't have ID cards they carry around in their wallet. You didn't have social media bios where you could say, I'm a Christian. But how do you tell? How do you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, in the New Testament and through the church ever since, the way you profess faith is baptism. You're baptized professing, I am part of this people. The people are baptized, men and women showing the inclusiveness of the community. Even Simon the magician professes faith. But there's something still unique about him. He kind of hangs on to Philip. Uh, The verse says he continues with Philip, might be translated also, he attaches himself to Philip, impressed with the signs and wonders. That's going to need to be corrected because it seems like his motive, his heart might not be in the right place. So we go to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles back in Jerusalem hear that something crazy has happened. The Samaritans are being baptized and becoming a part of us. So they go to check it out. And what do they find when they get there? 
they find that people had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized, but the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them. What was happening here is that the people in Samaria were in the same position the apostles were in before Pentecost, after Jesus ascended. They believed in Jesus, and they were now followers of him. They had life in the kingdom, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of becoming a Christian as one single thing or one single event. When somebody becomes a Christian, only one thing happens. They just are converted. I would propose to you that when somebody becomes a Christian, it's actually a whole bunch of things happen. It's a whole series of events. I like to describe conversion more as a process than just a momentary decision. We often see the momentary decision, but behind the decision are a whole bunch of things that are going on when somebody is saved. So, like when you get married, that's a whole process of things that happens to be married. There's a proposal, somebody is given a ring, there's an engagement, there's the ceremony, and in the ceremony itself, a whole bunch of things go on. There's the exchanging of vows, exchanging of rings, the minister or judge or who the authority pronounces your husband and wife. There's the first kiss as a married couple. There's consummation. And when you ask, well, when were you married or which part made you married? All of it did. The whole thing was our marriage. The same thing for salvation. A whole bunch of things go into that. The Lord calls. You are made alive, regenerated. Your sins are washed away. Your heart goes from heart of stone to heart of flesh. The Spirit indwells you and seals you. You repent of sins, confess Lord or Jesus as Lord, and confess belief, and you confess that faith through baptism. All of that goes into salvation. These people only had a part of it. They needed the Holy Spirit to come and complete that work of salvation in them. They were missing something. So the apostles come, and through the apostles, the Spirit is sent upon them. Which shows a couple of interesting things. The Holy Spirit only comes when the apostles are connected to them. Which would show the Samaritans, you're not on your own. You need to be part of the larger church. You're connected to the whole church. Then it shows the apostles, these Samaritans are part of your family. This is a theme throughout this, something we need to pick up on. The Lord intentionally connects people together through evangelism. Connects people not just to himself, but to the church. Simon doesn't get that whole message. He sees what's going on, sees the Spirit come through laying on of hands. He says, how can I get some of that power? He asks if he can buy what the apostles had. There's actually a term for this. Do you know what it is? Simony. That's where this comes from. 
Simony is the buying or selling of religious favor or privileges. It's thinking that you can buy God's stuff, God's favor. That's what he was doing, thinking that he could get God's favor from buying it, purchasing it. We commit the same sin whenever we think we can get God's favor by earning it, working for it. If we give to this campaign, God will bless us with financial gifts. No, 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 no. That's not why we give. We give out of gratitude and thanks. Not to get what God might give. So Peter rebukes him and does so pretty harshly. Uh, the last time Peter rebuked somebody in the church harshly, it was a scary moment. They both died. And Peter rebukes him. Basically says, may a curse be upon you if you think you can buy the Spirit. You have no part in this ministry. And maybe with the church, if you think you can buy the Spirit, repent if possible for forgiveness. And I think Simon or Peter is saying, not that it might not be possible that the Lord would forgive. I think Peter is saying it might not be possible that you can repent. He questions the condition of his heart. I don't know where you're at with the Lord, but you need to repent, if possible, for forgiveness. Because your heart is not right. You're stuck in iniquity. This is a serious call for repentance. Repent or else. What does Simon do? Peter tells him, pray to the Lord for salvation. And Simon says, would you please do that for me? And this has left commentators wondering, was Simon repentant in the end. Peter told him to pray, and it seemed as if Simon was unwilling or unable and asked Peter to pray for him. You might conclude that maybe Simon in the end was just not even willing or able to pray for repentance and salvation. Or it could be, you could interpret this as saying, well, Simon's just really humble and saying, Peter, help me. And I honestly don't know how to interpret it. Where did Simon end up in the end? I don't know. I have commentators convinced of either direction. I lean towards, this is Simon, as immature as he is, saying, I want to be part of your community, help me. And I think this is him genuinely coming to faith. And I think that fits with the theme of the kingdom of God coming and dismantling other powerful kingdoms, even Simon's own, and bringing these people on the fringes in. Unlikely people like Simon the Magician, even those who practice demonic sorcery, if they'll repent and believe, can come be a part of this people. We're going to have to go through it quickly, but we're going to do it. <laughs> we see that also in our last section, that outsiders are brought in powerfully if they'll repent and believe. You see that in the Ethiopian eunuch. In verses 26 through 40, an Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. An Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, 
Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So we continue on in evangelism of Philip, his missionary works, and an angel of the Lord tells Philip, Go! Rise up and go! On the road to Gaza. Sounds very similar, rise up and go, to the call on Jonah. Except Philip has the Spirit of God and is obedient. And he goes on this desolate, kind of unused road that was on its way to Gaza on the coast. And we learn quickly why Philip was sent. On the road, there's a eunuch from Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia at that time would correlate with the land called Cush in the Old Testament. Modern-day Sudan, which is south of Egypt and actually north of modern-day Ethiopia. That's where this Ethiopian was from. And he is there with a royal position. He is a eunuch. This meant that he was over the king's harem. And if you're a man appointed over the king's harem, the king doesn't want that man to uh, interfere with any of the king's women. So they were eunuchs, men who had had their male parts removed. He, now, pretty severe position. The trade-off is lots of wealth and power. And that's what he had. He was a man of status, wealth. He oversaw his queen's money. Interestingly, he's also a God-fearer. Notice what he's doing or why he's on the road in the first place. He was worshiping in Jerusalem. And he had scripture on him. He was a man who knew God, worshipped him, and invested his money in the book of Isaiah. Scrolls and books weren't common just to have that around. That was a costly thing to have a book and to be educated and read it, and he's reading it out loud. So he had invested his religion, his time, his money into worshiping God. Except, as a eunuch, he would never be allowed in the full assembly of God's people. Old Testament law dictated that eunuchs were not allowed. They were ritually unclean, impure, so they were not allowed in the sanctuary, in the inner worshiping of God's people. So he was what was called a God-fearer, a Gentile, who knew God and worshipped him, but was never really, couldn't ever become a full proselyte, a full um, status Jew in the people of God. He would always be on the fringes because... He was a eunuch. That is, until he met Philip. By God's plan, God orchestrated a Bible study. Philip goes up to the chariot on the road, hears him reading out loud. What you reading there? The man reads Isaiah 53 a passage written hundreds of years ago about a suffering servant who would come and die 
for the sins of his people, who would be led to slaughter, rejected by many, but in the end exalted by God. There's a passage written hundreds of years ago, before Jesus' time, about Jesus and the crucifixion. It just so happens that this is what the Ethiopian is reading. Philip asks him if he understands it. And the guy says, how can I without somebody's help? Great humble answer. Scripture's hard to understand sometimes. I need help with this. He asks a great question about the text. He says, is, is this about the prophet or somebody else? In ministry terms, we would call this a, a softball. This is a big, giant, right down the center, over the home plate. As an evangelist, as a Bible study teacher, you've got to knock this one out of the park. It doesn't get set up any more beautifully. This song about the suffering servant sent to die for the people and take their sins upon him, who's this about? Yes, actually, a really good question. It could be about the prophet himself, or it could be about somebody else, but I just don't know. And then Philip is able to unpack, that is about Jesus Christ. You may have heard of him when you were in Jerusalem. He's the man who was just crucified, but a lot of people saw him resurrected, and now his gospel's going out. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the suffering servant, surprisingly. The king is the one who suffers on our behalf. And Philip is able to teach this man about Jesus through Isaiah 53. A couple of interesting points here. Think about this. Philip preaches Jesus without a New Testament. He's got only the Old Testament in front of him, just a portion of the Old Testament, and that is enough to preach the gospel because all of the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Also notice, this religious man who's educated, who has money, who's clearly devoted, does not understand his scripture without Jesus Christ. Which is a point we make often, but it's true. Until you have the Spirit of God and know Jesus personally, you will never be able to understand what your Bible is saying. That unless you know Jesus as the fulfillment of all that Scripture is talking about, you can't make heads or tails ultimately of what the Bible is about. You're going to think it's a book of rules. You're going to think it's a nice history maybe, some fables and stories, but you're never going to be able to understand what Scripture is all about, how it relates to you, and why it's so important until you understand the King and know who He is, and you need God's Spirit to connect you to Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian can't know what Scripture is saying until he knows Jesus. So I'd say to you, if you read your Bible and you don't know what it's saying, you might need to know Jesus. And maybe there are confusing parts that you just need help with. And we've got Bible study tools for that. And maybe you just need some Bible study help. Because there are confusing parts. Scripture itself says this. But if you are reading your Scripture over and over, and you're saying, this is really cloudy to me, and I can't make heads or tails of any of this, it might be you need the Spirit of God for the first time to cause you to be alive to his word, to understand who Jesus is. There is something that happens when the Spirit comes upon people when they know Jesus. The flip gets switched, or switch gets flipped, whatever way you want to say. The light comes on, and they say, oh, 
the Bible saying? That light gets turned on when Jesus comes and somebody knows him. That's what happened here. So he's going to be baptized because of it. Verse 36 through 40. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. They happened to pass by some water. I am convinced as a Baptist it was larger than a puddle. Uh, Notice it says he came up out of the water. You don't come out of a puddle. R.C. Sproul, a Presbyterian commentator, said, well, you know, we don't know whether there was enough for him to be fully immersed. R.C., come on now, we know. They came upon water big enough to be baptized in, and they come up out of the water after being dunked. The Ethiopian expresses his faith, saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in him. Clearly, he's the one Isaiah is talking about. And the Ethiopian comes out after being baptized rejoicing. He had already known God, but now he could rejoice, because now he is part of the kingdom of Christ. No longer a member on the outside, no longer on the fringes, now fully united with the people of God through his baptism. He took part in a ceremony that he could never have taken part in. He was excluded from the ceremonies previously. Now he is included through his baptism. So he comes away rejoicing. He takes the gospel down to Africa. Peter takes the gospel up north of the coast as the Spirit sends him. It almost reads like Spirit, that Peter, or Phillips, I should say, sorry, Philip vanished uh, like a magician. I don't think that's what happened. I think it's just saying the Spirit sent Philip on his way. They didn't see each other again. But they saw each other there. And I'll close just by asking, Why? Why did God send Philip to this Ethiopian? The Ethiopian eunuch was already reading scripture, already knew God. God could have just spoken to him, appeared to him like he did Abraham. Philip was not needed as an evangelist there. God, if he wanted to, could have made himself known fully to the Ethiopian eunuch. But God, in his sovereignty, sent an evangelist. He sent Philip to connect that Ethiopian to the church. So this is how the Lord works. He doesn't need us. He never needs anybody to reveal himself. But he chooses to, in his sovereignty, send people so that they can be connected together in the church of Jesus Christ. So that Philip could have that experience of knowing the gospel's going to Africa. And I saw a man confess faith. And so that that Ethiopian eunuch can know God sent somebody to me and made me part of this kingdom. God has this missionary desire to send his church out so that they could bring others in. Even people on the fringes, like an Ethiopian eunuch or a demonically inspired magician or a Samaritan or an American, God sends his church out to bring people in. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you this morning that the church has been scattered. And Lord, we pray that you continue to scatter us. Let us not be like um, a pool of water that just collects. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be a river through which your spirit and word flow, that we continue on taking the gospel out to the people next. And Lord, that we would do that with our own children, that we as parents would see the obligation that we have, not just to receive the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but to pass it on to those who are in our midst, to our neighbors, to our friends and family, Lord. And then uh, we would do that individually, Lord, also corporately as a church, that we would not see CBC as the final resting place of the gospel, but Lord, as a place through which the gospel is sent out and scattered. Lord, help us to be about that work because we see from Acts so clearly that it's your burden and your desire uh, to send the church out and to bring outsiders in, strange people even like us who can belong in your kingdom. We praise you, Lord, for this good news. On this Palm Sunday, we worship the King. Amen.